today's panel. Governor Gerald Belisles was born in Patrick County, Virginia. Um, he received his bachelor's degree from Wesleyan University and his law degree from the University of Virginia. After law school, he went to work for the Virginia Attorney General's office before um, being elected to the House of Delegates. He was elected Attorney General in 1981 and in 1985 became Governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Can't list all his accomplishments as Governor except to say germane to this conference. Um, he was a, a champion of both transit programs that included mass transit as well as efforts to stem pollution of the Chesapeake Bay. After his, um, his service as governor, he went uh, on to become a partner at Hunt and Williams Law Firm here in Richmond. And uh, more recently, he has been director of the University of Virginia's Miller Center for Public Affairs, which uh, has a special emphasis on the Amer history and, the, uh, and research on the American presidency. So he will be our moderator today, but let me just briefly introduce the other panelists so he does not have to do that. Um, W. Taylor Murphy, who is sitting over there with the bow tie on, um, has been a leading voice for envi environmental interests for decades in Virginia, playing an instrumental role in the development of legislation, regulation, and policy. He is also a Virginia Law School graduate and was a member of the House of Delegates from 1982 to 2000, and he served as the Secretary of Natural Resources from 2002 to 2006. He is now semi-retired from a law practice, although he still does practice a bit in Warsaw, and he lives uh, in the Northern Neck with his wife, Helen, on the banks of the Potomac. And according to him, he spends the balance of his days going around telling people what they ought to do. <laughs> Ann Jennings is the, I won't point out which one Ann is. She's the only woman on the panel, for those of you with powers of deductive reasoning. She is the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Virginia Executive Director. As ED, Ann oversees the Bay Foundation's environmental and legislative advocacy, resource, resource protection, land conservation, and grassroots programs in the Commonwealth. And you may not know this, but the CBF is the largest regional conservation organization in the country. And you see their bumper stickers, the little blue ones on the cars that say, Save the Bay. That's their work. Prior to her work as ED in Virginia, um, which she was named in 2005, Anne was an assistant director and senior scientist at the CBF office in Virginia and worked also before that as a biolo biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She's uh, been on a number of appointed state boards. She crosses political spectrums apparently because she was appointed by Governors Gilmore, Warner, and Kane to various uh, advisory boards, which says a lot about her. She holds um, degrees from Virginia Tech and Texas A&M University and is, the is a graduate of the Virginia Natural Resources Leadership Institute. And finally, Jerry McCarthy, who sits there on the end in his appropriate St. Patrick's Day tie, <laughs> has served as the executive director of the Virginia Environmental Endowment since its founding in 1977. Uh, before the VEE, Jerry served as chairman of the Commonwealth of Virginia's Council on the Environment for Governors Holton and Godwin. And he has been on numerous government boards, including the Commonwealth Transportation Board, the Richmond Metropolitan Authority, and others. He's been awarded by organizations uh, from the National Geographic Society to the Nature Conservancy and the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. He's a veteran of the U.S. Air Force and has taught at Duke University and VCU and holds a master's degree in nuclear engineering from the University of Washington at Seattle. That is your panel. Governor Belisles, I turn it over to you. 
Thank you, Paul. It's good to be back at the Virginia Historical Society where I spent a thousand years as a member of the board of this organization. Eleven years, as I recall. Uh, but what a wonderful venue for such a discussion that has transpired here during the day. I've been on the road, it, seeming, it seems, for weeks and doing a lot of programs, and so I missed much of what you have discussed today, but I was uh, very curious about the last program. I've heard about 10 or 15 minutes of it, and it's an area of the, the country that I know something about. I've spent time there, and I think curiosity is one of the keys to early learning, but it is also a key to continued learning. And I think those of us who are curious about the impact that humanity has on the planet that we inhabit is a key to understanding not only the scope of our challenges, but the search for our solutions. Our panel topic is environmental policy yesterday and today. Uh, and I realize this is the last thing between you and the early beginnings of St. Patrick's Day celebration. <laughs> so how do we deal with something in 60 minutes? when we could spend days talking about it. Uh, how growth occurs, where it occurs, when it occurs, uh, can have uh, enormous impacts on our environment, uh, on our natural resources, our scenic beauty. Uh, and so trying to focus on the range and scope of uh, the environmental policies that any state must uh, consider uh, is a very difficult <coughs> Very difficult assignment. So we have a wonderful panel here, experts in environmental policy, uh, with impressive credentials, especially regarding the Chesapeake Bay. And because, in many respects, the Bay is a microcosm of the environmental challenges confronting our state, uh, we thought we might focus on the Bay itself as a way of gaining insights and perhaps some extrapolated wisdom about just what we are confronting and how we might do it. Let me uh, state, uh, start with a brief statement uh, to provide some context because I don't know what the range of knowledge here is about the Bay itself. But as we all know, or at least I hope we know, that in the early 80s, there was a large public outcry in this country, particularly in the mid-Atlantic region, about the state of the Chesapeake Bay. And as a result of leadership by Senator Mathias of Maryland and others, uh, there came into being a Chesapeake Bay partnership, a program that consisted of Maryland, Virginia, the District of Columbia, EPA, and the Chesapeake Bay Commission. And over the last 30 years, there have been some remarkable uh, partnership efforts. Uh, there has been developed, uh, I think, the uh, world-class leadership in estuarine science. Uh, they've pioneered cleanup strategies. Uh, there have been measurable gains in dealing with uh, flows of pollution entering the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, but in spite of all of that commendable effort, uh, the Chesapeake Bay is still overwhelmed with challenges. And it's because of a very simple demographic uh, fact. The bay is not a static area of this country. There are people moving in all the time with all the consequential demands that that uh, means. So let's just take a quick look at where we are so that we can uh, then entertain some rather interesting questions for you to, to think about. 
We all know that oysters were once very plentiful uh, in the uh, Chesapeake Bay. They formed reefs large enough to uh, pose navigation hazards. That's hard to believe, but today oysters are just a small fraction of their historic uh, levels. The story with blue crabs is only uh, slightly less troubling uh, because they've been rapidly declining for decades. The problems are not confined to shellfish. Uh, as much as 40% of the bay's uh, deep waters lack enough oxygen uh, to, uh, to feed the fish on summer days. Uh, even striped bass or rockfish, uh, which have made a steady recovery in recent years, are still challenged. Virtually all of the bay's, uh, all of the bay's waters, the tidal areas, have been on the EPA's dirty waters list for a long time. Uh, and we've learned some things about all of this over the last 30 years. And that's the thing I think we need to think about is if a problem exists for 30 years and you've been worried about it and you've undertaken efforts, how long is enough? I mean, when do you reach the point where you think you've turned the corner, as it were? Well, what we've learned is kind of interesting. Uh, Chesapeake Bay is still a national treasure. It's a resource of worldwide significance. Uh, it's America's largest estuary. Uh, it's our still most ecologically productive estuary in the country. It's a powerful economic engine for uh, the entire mid-Atlantic region. If you think about it, from real estate to shipping to seafood to tourism, uh, it would be difficult to identify a major segment of the region's economy that is not shaped or enhanced or affected by the Chesapeake Bay. I read some numbers several years ago about Maryland, for example, and the recreational boating activity in that state was valued at $2 billion a year. In Pennsylvania, the estimate was $4.7 billion in fishing activities across the state, resulting in 43,000 jobs, uh, outfitting, lodging, guiding uh, uh, anglers, and that sort of thing, comprehensively it was estimated that the impact was in excess of a trillion dollars. We've been reminded too that the Bay is a rich uh, depository of our culture and our history, from the Native Americans uh, through the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. Uh, we built a country that uh, was born really around the Chesapeake Bay and a key part of our American civilization started within the watershed of the Chesapeake Bay. We know that there's a broad consensus uh, about the causes of the Chesapeake Bay's troubles. Nutrient and sediment pollution uh, comes from a host of sources, including farms and feedlots, municipal and industrial uh, wastewater facilities, air pollution, runoff from development. Uh, some of the things that are interesting to think about during those 30 years of assessing the problems of the Bay, listen to these numbers. Agricultural lands within the Chesapeake Bay region account for nearly a quarter of the watershed, and they contribute more nutrients, more sediments to the bay than any other land use. Almost two-thirds of the sediment, 41% of the nitrogen, 47% of the phosphorus, come from agricultural operations. More than one-fifth of the nitrogen and phosphorus loads come from wastewater plants. Septic systems also contribute. Uh, developed urban and suburban lands account for less than 10% of the watershed, but they add 11% of the nitrogen, 16% of the phosphorus to the bay. 
and modeling indicates that nearly one-third of the nitrogen entering the bay comes from air pollution, with principal sources being cars and trucks, power plants, off-road sources such as construction equipment. Importantly, we've also learned that there exists a host of solutions to these problems. Nutrient removal technology for wastewater treatment facilities is actively in use in a number of our plants. Some 30 best management practices already exist to stop nutrients and sediments flowing from developed lands as well as agricultural lands. From tailpipes to smoke pipes, smokestacks, the technology exists to curb the nitrogen oxides that eventually fall out to the earth and pollute our waters. So we've drawn some conclusions over these 30 years. One of them is the tide of time is running out. The watershed loses more than 100 acres a day of forest. Uh, the population of the watershed grows by hundreds of thousands of people a year, putting new strains on already overburdened sewage treatment plants. While population grows uh, it, within our area, the amount of impervious surfaces, that is, the hardened landscape that comes with roads, shopping centers, houses, and the like, continue to skyrocket. When we did a study a couple of years ago, I remember being impressed with this fact, that a one-acre parking lot produces 16 times the volume of runoff from a one-acre meadow, or about 40 times from, a, from 40 acres of forested area. In other words, every day we change the landscape and the hydrology of nature in ways that make solving our problems uh, exponentially more difficult and more expensive. So what do we do with this? Today's restoration efforts and the states and the federal government are all involved in these restoration efforts. They're simply being overtaken by events. Development patterns, including dramatic increases in pervious surfaces over the last couple of decades, changing the landscape, losing forested areas, meadow areas, we're all working against restoration. But what does society do about that when society moves in? Do you, you can't just draw a fence around the Chesapeake Bay region. But so the bay is not a static body of water with which we are dealing. And that's why it will never be more achievable or less expensive than it is today. So what do we do about this? Uh, how do we address these questions? And that's where I want to turn to the panel uh, and initiate a round of questions that may make my friends on this panel, friends all, uh, a little bit nervous about how to respond. The first question to Ann Jennings, and that is, how can we market the message? How can we advise the public? How can we inform and educate the population? about the condition of the bay, about the value of the bay to our society in light of these changing demographic patterns that impose great burdens upon the bay itself, even if we're not always aware of it. And take it away. Great. Thank you, Governor. Um, before I get into to, uh, some answers, attempts to answer that uh, difficult question, let me just uh, offer uh, my thanks uh, to the Virginia Historical Society and VEE um, for this wonderfully innovative and um, thought-provoking conference. I, I do hope you all uh, consider uh, continuing it in the future. 
Um, I also want to just uh, offer my thanks as well to being um, invited to be a part of this panel. I am personally very inspired uh, by these three gentlemen, uh, your vision, uh, your leadership, and um, not the least of which your accomplishments um, have put us in a, in given us the opportunity in 2012 uh, to, to see the Bay restored in, in the very near future. And um, it's a real privilege and an honor for me to be up here, so I, I want to say my thanks. Um, Regarding messaging, I guess uh, first we want to recognize the fact that messaging is just a, a means to an end. Um, so let's start with what our, think about what our goals uh, should be uh, in regard to developing messaging. And I, and I think there are sort of two separate and distinct goals uh, when we consider uh, restoration of the Chesapeake Bay. And one is that, that we want people to act, and the other is that we want people to act up. Um, let's start with people acting. Uh, in order to bring about a healthier bay, we need homeowners, individuals, developers, corporations, farmers uh, to take and make personal decisions uh, that will uh, reduce pollution, reduce those uh, primary pollutants, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment flowing into the bay. Um, in that particular case, of course, your message, as in all messaging, is tailored to the audience. Um, but in each of those cases, I think we need to um, build upon the, the multiple benefits that particular actions have, not just the benefit of providing a, a clean local stream or a clean Chesapeake Bay. I'll take, um, for example, a specific example. You think about uh, the farmers in, in the Shenandoah Valley having a, a significant impact on the health of the Chesapeake Bay, um, a dairy farmer in particular, uh, one that uh, has their livestock out on a pasture land with access to a stream. We will want that farmer uh, to make a personal decision to spend thousands of dollars to build a fence along the stream to prevent his cows from getting down into the stream and, and obviously creating a pollution source. Um, trying to sell that on um, the, the, the fact that we recognize that it provides for cleaner water, cleaner streams, cleaner Chesapeake Bay may not work. Um, but if we talk to that farmer, or more important, we have another farmer talk to that farmer about uh, the benefit to his or her bottom line, that the fact that bringing those cows up and out of the stream um, make for healthier cows, um, uh, more milk, uh, fewer vet bills. Um, so, so ultimately, it improves his or her bottom line. So perhaps that dual message of you can improve your farm operation and uh, improve that local stream, maybe improve the fishing off your farmland, uh, and ultimately save the Chesapeake Bay. Um, that sort of multiple messaging, uh, multiple benefits rather, uh, we think can help individuals make those uh, personal decisions. But the ACT UP part, I, I think, is, is, is a lot more difficult messaging, and there are a lot of different opinions about this, so I'm just going to offer a couple of the thoughts that I have and, and that of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and, and you all may may have your own opinion about what messages will work. And, and in this case, when I talk about acting up, um, as Governor Belisles indicated, we're at a very critical point where um, it will not be any more achievable or any less expensive as if we continue to delay the restoration and improvement of the Chesapeake Bay. So there's a great need at this point in time uh, for many, many people to act up, to step up and tell their politicians, whether it's a member of Congress, a local board of supervisor member, a delegate or a senator, that they want them to make decisions 
to, about programs, about funding uh, that are needed to improve the health of the bay. And, and in this case, I think we kind of, I'm going to generally categorize people in, in two different categories. Um, in one, one category, we think about individuals who might already um, uh, consider themselves to be an environmentalist. They might, you might be a member of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and you might be particularly motivated already. Um, but to motivate you to take that extra step, to write a letter to the editor or write a letter to your member of Congress, um, we want to emphasize the successes. Uh, we want to emphasize the fact that we are 50% of the way there. And in our lifetime, uh, we can ultimately see a restored bay. Um, talk about the successes at the local level. The Lynn Haven River, for example, in Virginia Beach has seen a, 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 a thousands of acres, or hundreds of acres, rather, open up for oyster harvest just in the last decade um, because of work that Virginia Beach and local citizens in that area have taken in order to improve water quality. Um, but we also want to emphasize the fact that time is running out. Um, we now have a new deadline uh, to restore the bay of 2025. And many believe that if we get to 2025 and we still aren't there, um, the public may begin to accept the status quo. Um, and we may have lost our opportunity uh, to bring the bay back. And I'll leave you with um, those individuals who may not automatically consider themselves predisposed to, um, to care about conservation. And everyone who cares about conservation, but, but care about the environment in a way that they'll take that step, the step we really need now, to pick up the phone and call um, their representative and urge them, again, to make decisions that are needed to improve the health of the Bay. Um, Governor Bliles talked about this. I think, I think we need to hammer home the message uh, that uh, improving the health of the Bay is, a, is about improving uh, Virginia's economy. Um, in thinking about today, I, I told Taylor I, I went back to a, a speech that he made in April of 1985. Um, this is a message that Taylor has been trying to have us hear um, for so many years. It was a speech to the Virginia Seafood Council um, where he talked about the fact that everything we do that affects the Bay imposes a cost, a cost that will or has been paid by someone else. We need to hammer home that message to the general public about the dollars and cents of an unhealthy bay. And also the fact that the actions we want our government, we want individuals, private citizens, farmers to, to take, can help to stimulate our economy, can help to provide jobs. And hopefully, many more of us will act up uh, and put pressure, um, urge our politicians uh, to make the decisions of making Bay Health a priority, um, providing the programs, the incentives, and the funding that are necessary, because we really do have an opportunity in our lifetime uh, to see the Bay brought back. Thank you. And thank you for your comments. I think her message should be uh, echoed and reinforced, because uh, polling data show that the public doesn't always believe the negative arguments one hears. Mm -hmm. That's true in transportation, mm -hmm. it's true in the environment. When you go out in the transportation field and talk about London Bridge is falling down and they don't see it, they don't believe it. So you've really got to focus your message and the polling data will show that the public responds much better to positive messages. And in the case that Anne's just mentioned, you show them the benefits that flow from taking these mm -hmm. corrective actions. Uh, second, the important thing is repetition of message. 
Uh, Procter & Gamble spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year to remind us to buy something called soap. <laughs> now why is that message, why does that message need to be repeated? And if it's true with soap, <laughs> if it's true with soap, it's got to be true for other areas of concern. And also in tailoring the message, you really have to figure out what is your audience. I always think of audiences in three Ps, the press, the public, and the politicians. And they respond to some of the same stimuli, but you've got to figure out where you're going with your message. Because sometimes, and this is a case here, I think, you really have to tailor your message to the press in order to reach the public, in order to reach the political policymakers. And I think organizations such as the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and the Alliance and a lot of other good groups, river keepers, uh, people like Tom Horton and um, uh, Bill Baker and so many others have done wonderful way, uh, delivered wonderful messages. Uh, to the press, the public, and the political class. But that is an audience that has to be considered in tailoring the message, and it has to be positive and not always the negative aspects that we uh, focus on. Okay, well, let's go to the second question. Um, what is lacking? I mean, if we know what's wrong with the Bay, if we know what the answers are to solving the Bay's problems, if we know what the solutions really are, then why isn't the message getting through? What is lacking? And to answer that question, easy as it is, uh, we're going to turn to Taylor Murphy, who has all answers about the environment. Thank you very much, Governor. I appreciate that introduction. And I want to uh, echo Anne's uh, comments at, at the opening of her remarks in, in thanking the Virginia Historical Society and the Virginia Environmental Endowment uh, for making it possible for us to be here today to discuss a, a subject that is very much on our minds and has been for a long time and will continue to be, and that is uh, saving the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Governor Belisles has outlined the problem in a general way uh, beginning 30 years ago with the uh, report that was commissioned by Senator Mathias when he was in Congress. Uh, and that report identified the three basic problems for the Bay, which was toxic pollution, uh, over-enrichment of uh, nutrients, and the loss of submerged aquatic vegetation. And as we have come to explore the problems, we have tried to develop a plan for solving those problems. We focused primarily, I think, in the past 30 years on uh, at the state level and at the national level uh, on, in voluntary programs on nutrient pollution and submerged aquatic, submerged aquatic vegetation restoration. Because under the Clean Water Act, the uh, EPA has not regulated nutrients. Uh, it has regulated uh, toxic chemicals, but it has not regulated nutrients. And that has really been left to the states uh, working together to try to solve the problem of nutrient over-enrichment. In 1993, following that report, uh, there was a large Ch Chesapeake Bay conference in 1983 at George Mason University. And at that conference, the Chesapeake Bay program as we know it today was launched. Uh, and a very brief agreement was signed uh, committing the signatories to combined, a combined effort to restore the health of the Chesapeake Bay. And the signatories to that uh, agreement 
were the governors of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, uh, the mayor of the District of Columbia, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and the chairman of the Chesapeake Bay Commission, which later became known as the Chesapeake Executive Council. Uh, and that is the overriding a governing board, so to speak, of the Chesapeake Bay program. Following the 1983 conference under the leadership of Governor Bilal's, the, uh, the same signatories executed a new agreement called the Chesapeake Bay Agreement of 1987. And it was in that agreement, uh, which was, I think, probably written by Governor Bilal's, if not substantially written by him, uh, and in that agreement, it said that the signatories agree by July 1988 to develop, adopt, and begin implementation of a basin-wide strategy to equitably achieve by the year 2000 at least a 40% reduction of nitrogen and phosphorus entering the main stem of the Chesapeake Bay. So the first step was to agree to reduce nutrients by 40% under this agreement. In 1992, under the leadership of Governor Wilder, we amended this agreement to provide for tributary strategies. In other words, we knew that in order to improve water quality in the Chesapeake Bay, on the main stem of the bay, we needed to treat each tributary according to its own problems and needs. And so, in 1992, we adopted amendments to the 87 agreement to develop tributary strategies so that we would plan how to deal with point and non-point source pollution in each one of the individual tributaries, which collectively would then improve water quality in the main stem of the bay. By 2000, we had not achieved the goals that we had set uh, back in 1987 and 1993, and then there was a new agreement in, the, in 2000. And the Chesapeake Bay Agreement of 2000 uh, provided in the following language that we would continue these efforts to reach the 40% reduction, and it committed the same signatories by 2010 to correct the nutrient and sediment-related problems in the Chesapeake Bay and its tidal tributaries sufficiently to remove the bay and the tidal portions of its tributaries from the list of impaired waters under the Clean Water Act. Now, so this was the plan, and, and, and the plan was to always to reduce these nutrients back to levels of 1985, which was the standard used in the 1987 <clears throat> agreement. In other words, we were going to reduce nutrients through reductions in point source and non-point source to get back to 1985 levels. Uh, unfortunately, by, by the year 2000, we had not done that. And so we had the 2000 agreement. Unfortunately, by 2010, we have still not done that. Uh, and therefore, uh, we have to, to look at the problems as we go forward. Today, there is a, an effort being made with the leadership of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to create a, a document called the Total Maximum Daily Load, which is essentially a pollution diet for the Bay. And what this would do under the, uh, what this TMDL does is it's, it sets caps on each state. In other words, they have set, back in seven, back in 2003, when I was Secretary of Natural Resources, we had a conference among the signatory states, and in addition to those, Delaware, West Virginia, and New York. And in at that conference, we agreed that 
we had to cap nitrogen at 175 million pounds a year and phosphorus at 12 million, 12.4 million as I recall, pounds per year or we were not going to get the quality of the bay back to what it should be. We allocated those caps to each one of the uh, states, the six states, and the EPA took a portion for air deposition and we were going to voluntarily get those uh, get the states to voluntarily meet those caps so that we would get the reductions necessary to do that. Uh, I was very proud of the fact that in, 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 during the administration of Governor Warner, we adopted for the first time in any state nutrient reduction requirements. Uh, EPA had not required it, but we adopted a regulation in Virginia to cap uh, or to include in wastewater treatment facilities nutrient caps. In other words, we would put nutrient limitations uh, in these wastewater permits. And then we went through a policy of developing new distributary strategies in order to, to reach the goals that had been established for the Commonwealth. In other words, of, this, of the 175 million pounds of nitrogen, we had been allocated 52 million. We had to reduce our nitrogen loadings to 52 million from both sources. And we tried to do that. But again, it was all on a voluntary basis. It was not, and it did not work, unfortunately. No matter how much we tried, we weren't able to get it done. And so, after President Obama was elected, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, through the use of the Total Maximum Daily Load Authorization, the Clean Water Act, adopted a plan by which each state would have to do what was necessary to reach the caps that had been established by the uh, computer modeling program developed by the Chesapeake Bay Program's EPA office. And, the, and I, my question, the, the question is, to me is, what do we need to do to solve the problem? What we need to do is implement the TMDL that has already been, a, is out there for, uh, for your review and for your support. It is under attack from every source. The American Farm Bureau has filed litigation in Pennsylvania to challenge the, uh, the, the TMDL as being invalid and unconstitutional and, and for any number of reasons, they're saying it can't be done. My, if, if I had one message to leave with you today, it is call your congressman and tell him to support EPA's effort to adopt this TMDL and to implement it. it is, we need leadership, we need leadership in the watershed. We had the leadership with Governor Bilal's and some of his successors. Uh, we've had leadership from time to time in Maryland and Pennsylvania, but we haven't had the kind of leadership that is uh, Chesapeake Bay watershed wide. And that's what the TMDL does. It, 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 a lot of people don't want federal government involvement, but the federal government has a role to play and it can be the leader in making all of this happen. And so that is my message as to how we solve the problem, and that is by supporting the current policies that have been advocated by the Environmental Protection Agency and the with the impact that they will have on the states. Easier said than done, as you can tell from watching the uh, press coverage of this. Um, you know, over the last 30 years, each state has developed a program, as you've heard from Ann and Taylor. Each state has appropriated funds to implement the programs. 
but the programs are not the same. They vary from year to year. They vary from budget cycle to budget cycle. They vary from the state of the economy to the, to the poor state of the economy. And in some states, a lot of money is appropriated one year while an adjacent state appropriates much less. And so the question often comes up is whether the money is being spent in the most efficient way to deliver the biggest bang for the buck in dealing with the specific problems of the Bay. Uh, so that raises this question. Uh, can the Bay's challenges be successfully confronted without a different governing model to address the Bay's problems. I mean, think about this. Go back to your history and think about the Articles of Confederation that existed between 1776 and 1787 when the country decided that it wanted to adopt a different model of government. Is that where we are? with the Chesapeake Bay, Jerry McCarthy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a surprise question. <laughs> He's been doing that to me for four decades now, and uh, I've enjoyed it all enormously. Uh, I have the great honor of saying that Jerry Belisles was once my attorney when he was an assistant attorney general and I was working for Governor Holton. He was assigned to represent the council for all the trouble we got into all the time. <laughs> And uh, I, I will say, sitting here uh, on behalf of Virginia Environmental Endowment, that foundations have the luxury of, of taking the long view. We, we are not elected officials with two-year terms or even four-year terms. Um, we don't have to produce anything uh, in a particular period of time. But the, the upside of that is that we do get to look at problems a little bit more systematically and um, over a longer period of time, perhaps. Our, our own involvement with the Chesapeake Bay goes back to at least um, Governor Robb's Commission on the Future of Virginia, which had, thanks to uh, Jerry Bemis, a major focus on the Chesapeake Bay. And they came out with lots of recommendations in 1984, I believe it was, uh, that we adopted as sort of our working agenda for a few years to make grants to help those recommendations come to fruition. And we've been involved in it ever since and had the great pleasure um, of working with Governor Balaz on the Citizens Advisory Committee for the Chesapeake Bay, with Delegate Murphy on the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act, and um, watching in vain um, the Chesapeake 2000 Agreement, which called for, among other things, a whole new way of managing the fisheries of the Chesapeake Bay. And, uh, and we're finally seeing a little bit of movement in that after 12 years. Um, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission is finally moving to regulate Menhaden um, in a more environmentally responsible, ecosystem-based, multi-species, um, active biology of the Chesapeake Bay kind of way. So we'll see whether that amounts to anything. But that was called for in the Chesapeake 2000 Agreement to develop a plan by 2005 for managing the bay's uh, fisheries on a multi-species multi ecosystem-based uh, manner. And we're not there yet. And it'll probably be a while before one could say that would actually happen. 
And, and it may be messaging is part of the problem. We may, you know, we may need to be much better storytellers, frankly. Um, people respond to stories, they don't respond to facts. We've, we've seen that all too often in the last few years. Facts seem to be irrelevant to certain environmental discussions, but stories engage people. And, and I think we need to do a better job of storytelling um, because there are some great stories to tell. We, we invited the Chesapeake Bay Foundation to come into Virginia and set up its Virginia office in 1980. And I'm really glad we did. They've done a great job ever since. Uh, and that it's a great story. And they're too busy actually trying to save the bay to tell their story. Uh, what we need is someone, maybe the endowment, maybe somebody with more money than we have, to engage the best possible marketing people in the country to help tell the story of what's going on with these positive things, such as the Lynn Haven River oyster restoration. We gave Lynn Haven now its first money, too. We're very proud of that project. The Elizabeth River project's been terrific result-oriented restoration program down there on the south side of Hampton Roads. There, there are good stories to tell, but the fact is, um, there hasn't been any real public accountability for implementing the Chesapeake 87 agreement or the 2000 agreement or the TMDL. Um, I have to tell you a, a little history about the, this is a history conference. Uh, we made a grant to the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, back in the mid 80s. And they produced a volume called Toxic I'm sorry, not toxic, poison runoff. It was the first systematic report, and it's about yo thick, uh, on runoff from farm fields and forests and stormwater. And they uncovered the TMDL section of the Clean Water Act back in the mid-'80s. And the Clean Water Act had been in business since 1972, and no one had paid the slightest bit of attention to the TMDL part of that law until NRDC found it in the course of studying um, poison runoff, as they actually referred to uh, non-point sources. I mean, who in the real world uses language like non-point source runoff? You say poison runoff, you've got their attention, okay? So not only do we have to tell better stories, but we've got to find better language that actually connects with the way people live and what people <coughs> are concerned about. And, and to be more to make our environment stories more people-friendly. You know, talk in terms of where the other 98% of the people who are not worried about the environment consciously today <coughs> are. How do we relate to them? So. Uh, I am going to answer your question, <laughs> but I'm having so much fun with these I'm, other questions. I'm, I'm waiting. Um, we do have coordinating mechanisms. Well, how that's, how's that worked out? I mean, if it weren't for Jerry Balaos, we wouldn't be as far along as we are, because he came in and took over the Chesapeake Executive Council, which was headed by the EPA administrator for the first four years, and the states were, and the governors were kind of second-tier players, and he said, why should that be? I think we ought to rotate the chairmanship every year, and guess who would be first in line to be the first non-EPA chairman? Governor Belisles, and he's the one who made the 87 agreement happen, and he probably did write most of it. Um, we need a mechanism that says, for example, why can't the President of the United States be more actively engaged in this? You get presidential leadership, 
you've got some powerful stuff going on when the President of the United States says this is important. And this President has actually done more about that than you know, all the previous Presidents probably combined because he's actually focused a little attention on it. But he could do more. But he's not exactly a coordinating mechanism. He's, he's a leadership uh, mechanism. We, we have the Chesapeake Executive Council. We have the Chesapeake Bay Commission, which has the states coordinating their effort. Taylor is a past chairman of that. Um, none of these people have the power of the purse or the power uh, to say yes or no uh, over what actually happens with the Chesapeake Bay. There is no, other than federal law, there's no ultimate enforcement mechanism for violating the Chesapeake Bay. And so I think it's worth taking a harder look at the whole TMDL program and say, what happens if nothing happens, which has been you know, entirely more the case than not since 1983. Now, one of the grants we made last year was to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation with Anne leading the charge to hold the government agencies accountable for implementing the Chesapeake Bay TMDL. Now, how they're going to do that is still up for discussion, but it's underway. And holding people up by the scruff of the neck to say, you promised to do this. Did you do it or not? And if you did, great. We're going to celebrate the success stories. But if you didn't, we want to make sure that everybody who turns on the television tonight knows that you guys are sitting around not carrying out your responsibility. Now, I'm over-dramatizing it a little bit because it's almost St. Patrick's Day and it comes naturally. <laughs> and, you know, but the point is, if we cannot relate to all those people who are turning on the television or their computers and surfing the internet and using their iPads to get the news that they care about, if we're not meeting them there, uh, we not only don't have a good message, we're not delivering it very well, and we don't have any consequences to show for the business of not having a, uh, a governing mechanism. I mean, you know, here's a quick story. When NASA was first sending people orbiting the Earth, they, uh, they found out that their, their ballpoint pens didn't work in outer space, and, you know, they, it just didn't work for lots of reasons. And so they said, Let's figure out how to make it work. And they spent billions of dollars and a couple of years to figure out how to get a pen that would work in zero gravity. You know what the Russians did? They brought some pencils along. <laughs> you know, where is the common sense in the Chesapeake Bay program? There, there is a little town called Edmonston, Maryland, that has the same stormwater issues that every other town in the Chesapeake Bay watershed has. And they're scared to death originally, they thought of how much money it's going to cost them to solve their problems with stormwater runoff. Because you hear that a lot from local governments and from the Farm Bureau and all these other people who say it's going to cost too much money, we can't afford it, blah, 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 now is not the time to raise taxes. How many times have you heard that? So, the mayor and the city council and whoever else was involved in it looked at their problem, actually, very straightforwardly, and said, you know, I think we can solve this problem with a little common sense, and we'll put this median down the road, um, and we'll create what we call green streets, and we'll have little, where the water flows along the hard surface of the street, we'll have indentations into the grassy medium, so the water, which follows points, you know, to the water goes to its lowest spot, right? So it goes right into that median, which becomes a rainwater garden for all intents and purposes. It pretty much solved their 
runoff problem for practically no money whatsoever. Now, if they can figure it out in Maryland, it seems to me we ought to be able to figure out <laughs> comparable things here in Virginia. Instead of saying, oh my god, it costs so much. Uh, money is necessary, that's absolutely true, but I don't think we need an Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council equivalent for the Chesapeake Bay to say, and that's finally my answer, we're going to enforce this. I think good storytelling, common sense, a certain amount of money, holding people accountable, and publicizing the success stories when they occur is a mixture of activity that will lead to better results. Well, we have uh, reached the point where it's time for questions. We don't have a lot of time left, as I understand oh. it. Uh, but I hope our uh, panelists have provided you with some information that you might find useful, questions that you might want to pose. And as moderator, I'll be glad to direct any question you have to one of those three. <laughs> uh, and anyway, as Mark Twain used to say, being talked to death is a terrible way to go. So we're going to let you talk. Okay, George. Uh, you have to come to the microphone. So if you have questions, please queue up behind the microphone. State your name for the record. And we'll see what we can do to answer your question. Uh, George Cole Scott, a very active member of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. I sail on Chesapeake every year. Uh, to say something positive uh, about the uh, James River Foundation, it's a lot smaller than Chesapeake Bay, but they've cleaned it up, river keepers and all that, brought back the wildlife. Now what I hear and read about what's going on in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, it's not the Manhattan at uh, Reedville, it's the egg producers, the chicken farms in Maryland, it's the coal plants all the way up from the Potomac to the Susquehanna. Now, some of these coal plants are being converted to gas, gas power, that's fine. But isn't it a much larger problem than what's going on in Virginia? Who would like to answer that question? I'm happy to okay, make an attempt. Taylor, would you like no, to go ahead. Are you sure? Go ahead. George, first, thank you for being a member of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and um, <laughs> giving me an opportunity to do the work that I do. Um, I would just offer, I guess my response to that is, you know, one of the things that's important to remember with restoring the Chesapeake Bay, it, it's a 64,000 square mile watershed. Um, as Governor Blyles indicated, there have been three decades of research and thoughtful study and concentration on what are the primary pollutants, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment, and where is it coming from? And, and, and the, the simple answer is that it's coming from everywhere. Um, it's all of us. Uh, it is um, point, point sources, wastewater treatment plants, our sewage treatment systems are a significant contributor. Runoff, runoff from farmland, runoff from uh, residential development. Um, septic systems are, as well are, are a significant contributor. It's also coming from air pollution, and in particular, coal-fired power plants. Um, a third of uh, that deposition uh, is a significant impact of nitrogen uh, pollution to the Chesapeake Bay, and, and we would suggest um, that that's why we need to take a very careful look at uh, the proposed Old Dominion Electric Cooperative uh, coal-fired power plant proposed for the town of Dendron that is just really now starting uh, the process of uh, going through state and federal permitting because it will be a new significant source of nitrogen pollution, uh, one that's currently unaccounted for. Um, so, so it will make this job even harder 
um, if a facility like that is, is constructed. Next question. My name is Dale Jones, and I'm a citizen <laughs> of Richmond and Virginia. And I would like to, and I won't excuse you, Governor, you've got to try to answer this also. Uh, I'll go last. <laughs> that's good. The <clears throat> program in the Bay is in trouble. And part of the problem is I don't think that we're telling the truth. And that's, if we tell the truth, that it may not be able to clean up the Bay. That the most we can do is stop it from deteriorating any further. And that even to do that, how much do you think it's going to cost every citizen, every one of these 16 million people in the, the watershed between now and 2025 to do that? Well, let me turn the question to one of our panelists, but ask you to also include in your answer, what is the cost if we don't do anything? Exactly. I think that's a very good question that Dale has asked. And Dale comes, by the way, as a former expert water pollution person for the state government, did a great job for many, many years. So thank you for your public service and your knowledge. Um, the cost, you know, people tend to think in, wow, what's this going to cost today? And you hear numbers like $20 billion or more floated around. Well, if you think about 16 million into 20 billion dollars over 25 years, let's say, because it isn't going to happen overnight, that cost very quickly comes down to a fairly low per capita number in a hurry. And so instead of saying it's going to cost 20 billion dollars, why don't we tell people it might cost you 100 dollars over the next decade out of your pocket to fix the Chesapeake Bay? Are you willing to pony up that kind of money? And then all of a sudden, and I won't go into my gas tax argument, Governor, because <laughs> it's the same thing with that. You know, the actual cost out of pocket is so small over a long period of time multiplied by 16 million people sharing their responsibility for their own role in cleaning up the bay, it seems to me is pretty low. And the cost of not doing it on the entire economy of the bay region is pretty high. And I might also add that, that really when you think about the cost of cleaning up the bay, you have to ask, whose bay is it? I mean, it, it, it drains six states from Cooperstown to Jamestown. Uh, but it is also a national treasure. So should Virginians pay just a proportionate cost uh, of the six states involved, or should we consider this as a national treasure? Whatever, whatever your answer, you've got to figure out how do, you, how do you persuade people about the importance, the value of this investment that we have, and how do we protect it, and what are the costs if we don't do anything? And then you have to look at how do you market this? I remember in the early 70s when we started looking at upgrading sewage treatment plants from primary to secondary to tertiary treatment. We looked at staggering sums of money. In Northern Virginia, for example, the primary and secondary treatment plants were so overloaded that there was a moratorium imposed on building in Northern Virginia until they could accommodate the waste that they were already generating. Northern Virginia stepped up to the plate along with the state, cleaned up the act there, 
created the additional capacity, and of course, what happened? There was explosive growth. I mean, Northern Virginia today is not what it would have been had the state not done anything. Now, you want to argue that we would have been better off had we not done it? Because Northern Virginia is the engine that's driving the Virginia economy. So, you know, I remember we started off saying, let's clean up the, the obvious pollution sources. That's the way to build public understanding and support. So you go after municipal sewage treatment plants, you go after industrial uh, output, and then as you begin to make progress there, you reach out to other areas of pollution sources, including runoff, non-point source pollution. But Jerry's right. I mean, you've got to figure out how do you show people the cost, and you spread it over time, you spread it over the country. I would argue that if you wanted to get the national government to really do more about this, I wouldn't get it just to focus on the Bay because somebody in the western part of the country has got other, other things to say. I would argue let's, let's string together a pearl of national treasures. The Chesapeake Bay, the Great Lakes, the Everglades, Great Salt Lake, bundle a package of that together and then I think you might have a national message that might persuade national audiences to provide national funding to help the states and the local governments deal with this critical issue. May I ask yeah. something? There's one thing that I would not agree. I do not think we ought to accept the status quo. I don't think the status quo of the Chesapeake Bay is acceptable. We have got to improve it from what it is today. It is just not a, the status quo. Is, Okay, Dale, got to get another question. We've got a long lineup. And, and, I'm, and I, 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 that's a fairly personal thing on my part because I, I'm, I've lived in the Bay Watershed on the banks of the Potomac and Rappahannock Rivers for almost 80 years, and I have seen the decline, and I know it can be better, and I will not accept the status quo. I hope it is, and I, I'm not against any of it, but I think we need to tell the public that it's costing them about $400 to $500 per capita per day to day and to... Uh, do this uh, Dale, I'm exercise my power. Yes, it'll cost about four <laughs> Okay, next question. Thank you. Uh, it seems to me, I'm, I'm an Arlington resident, and it seems to me that underneath a lot of these challenges for the Bay and throughout Virginia and its environment is a question of political culture. How is it that uh, we, it seems we're, we're confronted with the fact that large numbers of people in Virginia, as elsewhere, see environmental questions as inherently political and also as awfully close to morally illegitimate. What can we do to change that? Well, I think Ann Jennings did a wonderful job of, uh, and Taylor and Jerry, talking about marketing the message. You describe the value of the Bay, you talk in positive terms, you show the cost of inaction, and you stress the importance of this bay economically as well as socially and culturally. But I would add one thing, Governor, to that. When I was elected to the House of Delegates in 1982 and during my service, especially during the time of, of Governor Belisle's administration, uh, the bay was not a partisan issue. Uh, we had uh, a coalition of Democrats and Republicans uh, supporting our Bay programs and, and the initiatives, the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act uh, that was the centerpiece of Governor Belisle's, uh, one of his uh, environmental centerpieces during his administration. It had bipartisan support. Uh, when I was on the Chesapeake Bay Commission, we had Republicans, Democrats. We, parties weren't an issue. We were, 
we, we're, we're all there for the bay. And I don't know how we changed the culture, to, but now it's becoming far more partisan. Uh, it's almost as though uh, protecting our natural resources or protecting our environment has become a, a partisan issue. And it, we really need to change that. We need to get back to having this be something that everybody supports, not just Democrats or just Republicans, but uh, it's, a, it's a real issue. And I, and I understand what you're saying, and I appreciate that's a problem. We also are playing a zero-sum game here. We're showing <clears throat> in too many cases where to take action to preserve the environment is at the cost of some other activity in our social and commercial lives. And I think there are ways to complement the two and to make them work together without uh, trying to make this a uh, partisan issue or a cultural issue. Next question. Um, you guys talked a lot about phosphorus and nitrogen poisoning. I wondered if you were concerned with the mercury poisoning from the coal companies. Um, every time you burn coal, you put out mercury, which is a neurotoxin and makes its way into the streams and rivers. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you're right on point. Um, there are limits to what they're supposed to be able to discharge. One of the groups that we've supported for a quarter century is called the Southern Environmental Law Center. They're, in effect, the, the public's law firm. And they actually um, weigh in on permitting for new coal plants when they come up. They're involved in the old Dominion Electric uh, Co-op one. They were involved in the Dominion one. They managed to make the good case that mercury emission limits should be much lower than the original permit we're going to specify, and they were able to accomplish that. So at least on the legal front, um, there are good people working here in Virginia to limit mercury emissions to as low as technologically possible and perhaps even beyond that. On the question of mercury, the, uh, the mercury is a regulated pollutant under the Clean Air Act. Uh, and in 2005, the State Air Pollution Control Board here in Virginia adopted, or was it prepared to adopt a rule, a mercury rule that was more stringent than the federal government required. And the General Assembly in 2006 uh, passed legislation to prohibit that regulation from going into effect. Two more questions. Uh, we have very quickly, people. Jerry. Thank you so much for emphasizing how we have to change our language again. I mean, non-point source pollution has never made any sense for me. Mm -hmm. um, but let me say, what consideration has VEE and the policymakers uh, and your public policy people, Jerry, giving to using a pollution reduction, poison reduction credits uh, that could be traded on exchanges. This is the concept behind cap and change, cap and trade, which mm -hmm. is on the back burner. But what are you thinking about? What is being well, done now to think about this process? I'll let Ann process? provide more details, but I can tell you, Bob, that um, Virginia has a law allowing um, this type of exchange for, for water um, issues, non-point sources of water. It's part of the TMDL strategy that the state intends to implement. It is also extremely controversial. There, there are good, solid people in the, in the scientific world, uh, in the Bay world, 
who just don't believe it. As, as it's almost an article of faith. They think it's nonsense. And then there are others who feel just as strongly that is the, it's the only way that we're really going to resolve the issue of poison runoff, which is what I vow to keep calling it from now on. Thank you. Thank you for and, and, that. But I, I've deferred to these two folks here for more information on that. And if I can say, um, nutrient trading is, is a, um, a big part of the TMDL that uh, Taylor referred to. And the TMDL is a cap. Uh, it's a cap on um, how much nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment that the bay can accept and still be heavy, healthy. Um, at some point, when we achieve that cap, um, we'll still be growing. Um, so we'll need to continue to bring that pollution level down. We'll, we'll always be working, even beyond 2025, in order to bring down and maintain the cap on uh, the pollution limits on the bay. And nutrient trading um, will really become a part of that. And, and the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has been one of the organizations that has been supportive of the concept, but with some caveats. Um, we need to ensure that um, when nutrient trades occur, they're real trades. They're not just words on paper. They're real actions that have gone on the ground in order to reduce pollution. We need to, to ensure that there is a government entity, whether it's the feds or whether it's the state, enforcing trades. Um, and, and we need to ensure that there aren't impacts to local water quality. So your local stream is not impacted because of a trade that's meant to address the, the bay needs. Our final question. Good afternoon. My name is Katarina. I, uh, I have been here for one and a half years in America, uh, living in uh, Yorktown in Hampton Roads. And um, immediate, immediately after I came here, got involved into environmental issues and tried to help work on some campaigns because this is the nicest part you have in America is the environment and the natural resources. So we need to really do something about this and I wanted to contribute. So um, I've been working on some campaigns and um, I was trying to understand the way how you know America works, how everything works here. I realized that a big thing in America is um, to work on the advocacy level. Uh, and we heard it today from two of you, the solution for, uh, from the public, how we can engage them and bring them to uh, really be on board with us because we are just the environmentalists and then the others. So we need to bring them on board. And we heard the solution. We need to have more people call the congressmen, write the letters and just get in touch with them. So basically we need these all other people do this as well. But I see it, I a little bit get on their side to see it from their point because uh, I often, I have been doing it, but I don't often understand if it really works. So I would wish, as, as you mentioned, that we need storytelling. I would wish to hear more stories that, okay, if we contact congressmen, we call, it works. How does it work? How many people have called? Does he listen to me? Do they make notice of my call of letters? Is it going to the rubbish bin or not? So I think, from my point of view, more people could do it, and I would be doing it more often if I really know that it works or how far it works. And as well, we heard today about this partisan bipartisan issue, so I have now even more doubts than one year ago if it, <laughs> like, if it really m makes sense to call certain congressman, so I would just like to have more clarification on this and even to clarify it for the other public, for the 98%. 98%. 98%.
Because they can maybe then. Thank, thank you for your question. Tell us where you're from. I'm from Slovakia and I used to live in Germany, so I am very influenced on the environmental level, let's say. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Okay, thank you for your question. Uh, who wants to tackle that one? Well, We've been trying that. to figure out that answer too. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry? Well, and then I, Taylor? I, yeah, I, I, you know, there are certain congresspersons who have a reputation for uh, taking a stand on something. And for example, Congressman Goodlatte from up in the Valley of Virginia has tried to cut funding for the Bay Program. He failed in that effort, thank goodness. But now he's introduced a piece of legislation that would basically take EPA out of the Chesapeake Bay TMDL program, I think is what that legislation would do. I would hope mm -hmm. that legislation would fail because I don't think that's a constructive answer. Um, there is another congressman um, from the Bay Area, Rob Whitman. These are both Republicans, by the way. Rob Whitman was the only Republican member of the Virginia delegation to vote for, or I should say against, Goodlatte's amendment to take funding away from the Bay program, and that was very courageous on his part. He stood up, he did the right thing, in my view, for fighting to keep the appropriations to pay for the Bay. So it's not always partisan. It probably more has to do with who you represent. And Rob Whitman represents more people who live in the Bay region and care about it, even though Congressman Goodlatte also has a significant share of his constituency, whether they realize it or not, who live in the Bay watershed mm -hmm. as well. And frankly, they should be calling him to let him know if they don't agree with that particular stance of his, and I hope they will, but unless a lot of them call him, he's gonna keep fighting the Bay program. But if he hears from, I don't know, Governor, you, you have a better sense of this, or Taylor does, how many constituents does it take to make an impact on an elected official? The issue that is the influence in our political world, and, and, and so much of, the, of that influence is, uh, comes from, I should say, the highly paid lobbyists for the special interests. And unfortunately, most of the environmental organizations are nonprofit. The Chesapeake Bay uh, Foundation, for example, cannot support candidates. It can take positions on issues, but it cannot make tremendous donations uh, in terms of funding to particular candidates. So the environmental community is, has its hands tied, in, in many respects, in the political arena because it can't compete with those industries that are opposed to the environmental programs that are advocated by the environmental groups, uh, and yet they, can't, uh, they really can't compete with them. So it's really important for individuals uh, to become involved. Mm -hmm. And my, uh, I used, when I was in the legislature, I used to have people come up to me all the time and say, your, your district is different. You can take these positions and still get reelected. And I said, no, my district is not different, it, but you've got to get people to try to educate the public, and then you've got to encourage your constituents to get out and support uh, these efforts. And so even though uh, you are taking positions that some, some may not agree with, they will, they will tend to uh, ultimately give you their, their support 
uh, if they think that you're, you're doing the right thing, that, you're, that your heart is in it, and that you feel like you're doing the right thing, even if they don't always agree with you. But it's really important for the individual citizen to be involved, because it's, if the individual citizen does not become involved, we'll leave all of the influence to those special interests that are so highly paid. Ann? Uh, just <coughs> briefly, and I'm sorry I didn't get your name. Katarina. Katrina, that's a lovely name. Um, I, I would suggest to you there's a there's a test um, that uh, you can you can do. Go home and um, determine who your congressman is. Maybe it's Congressman Whitman, or it is great. Um, as Jerry mentioned, Congressman Goodlad has introduced the Chesapeake Bay Program Reauthorization and Improvement Act. Um, don't let the title fool you. Um, our short title is it's the Blow Up the Clean Water Act. It's, it would turn us backwards in restoring the Chesapeake Bay. And we want all of the members of Congress in Virginia, other than Congressman Goodlatte, obviously, to express their opposition uh, to this legislation. And not, you know, when it comes to the floor for a vote. We want them to express their opposition today. And, and I would suggest um, contact Congressman Whitman, have your neighbors and friends contact Congressman Whitman, and get others to, Congress, to contact other members of Congress and, and urge them um, to uh, speak out publicly against this legislation. And, and, and it becomes a test. It's an opportunity to see what a public uprising can do in regard to a very specific issue and, and one that um, could be very detrimental uh, to this effort. I would come at it. Uh, with a little bit different perspective, you have to recognize that people who are elected to public office uh, take with them a set of views. If they are firmly fixed, if they are strongly supported by those who elected them, you're not likely to persuade them to a different point of view. Uh, those who do may be courageous, but don't go back for another term. So. Political survival is always in the uppermost reaches of the, uh, the minds of those who serve in public office. Uh, second, uh, for those who are being lobbied, I've found that how you say what you say is very important. Those who are rude, who are disruptive, uh, generally don't succeed, although if there are enough of them in the streets, then... <laughs> <laughs> then that has been known to change the minds of a few people. Uh, so you really have to think strategically, not just tactically. And what you say and how you say it can be very, very important. I used to, when I was in the General Assembly uh, on some issue that didn't matter very much to my constituents, uh, I would be bombarded by lobbyists on both sides of an issue. Well-intentioned, very good advocates for their point of view, and I wasn't certain about how I was going to vote. And they would send messages in by a page and say, would you please come outside in the chamber? And I would go outside and they would lobby and then I'd go back and I'd get a, they were watching each other. <laughs> so it was a ping pong match. And I finally got both of them together outside the chamber and said, I'm going to vote the opposite way of the last one to contact me. <laughs> that stopped the lobbying and I decided the way I was going to vote. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the end of our panel. Uh, let me thank the audience for uh, participating and for your questions. And I want to thank especially my friends on the panel with whom I've worked, for whom I've had the greatest of admiration over the years. 
and for their contributions to the discussion today. Mr. Levingood, it's all yours. Thank you. <laughs>